Give me the green light. Give me just one night. I'm ready to go right now. I'm ready to go right now. I'm ready to go. Welcome, everybody, to episode 141 of the Greenlight Podcast, POC E-Frage. And on this episode, we are joined by Sally Namani, co-executive director, eventually, hopefully, just executive director. No, I'm just kidding. Co-executive director of Peace Players United States. Sally, welcome. This has been, uh, we have been emailing, I think, since before Thanksgiving of 2023. Uh, I appreciate your patience. I know I have canceled uh, and needed to move multiple times. So thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am super pumped to be here. I, I would also like to kind of add to your intro. I have an amazing co-ED and leadership is super lonely. And I'm so grateful that I have someone else to, to walk the journey with. So it's it's going great. And I, I couldn't ask for a better uh, teammate to be in this position with. Leadership is uh, super lonely. We may get back to that at some point as a question. We're going to start off with your journey with peace players so take us back to 2015 starting in belfast um which uh we were talking about before we started recording just a tad bit different than new york city so how did uh how did you get involved with peace players what is your what your journey with the organization yeah i mean i i've always thought about my work and think about my work as a long-term game and peace players has, has been um, an incredible or is an incredible stop in the journey that has allowed me to have you know, so, so, so many diverse experiences, both here in the US and in other places in the world. And you know, when I first learned about and joined um, Peace Players, like I was, I was an athlete you know, growing up. And before I get to Peace Players, I think it's important I kind of preface mm-hmm. um, the first leg in the journey, right? Um, athlete growing up and had a keen interest in you know, social impact and politics and international international affairs and kept those two worlds completely separate, right? So I played basketball, played with the neighborhood kids, but um, when it came to like my academics, I was very much like the group of people who I hung out with were very different from my, my basketball friends, right? Hmm. And so I went to undergrad, I went to uh, CUNY Lehman, which is part of the, the uh, City University of New York um, um, University. And I studied studied uh, political science and also played hoops on the women's um, basketball team. And so after undergrad, went to the New School, which is a small private school in, in uh, New York City uh, for international affairs. And during my time in grad school, I had the opportunity to intern at the International Chamber of Commerce, well, the Office of the Permanent Representative of the International Chamber of Commerce to the United Nations. And during my time there, I had the opportunity to sit in on a, a number of like UN um, UN events and a number of helped with co-writing a number of um, interve- intervention speeches for my boss at the time. And this was when I really began, I sat in on a session, sorry, around like sport as a tool for sustainable development and peace building. And this was my first kind of introduction to this world. I had no clue this world existed. And so in wanting to learn more, I came to stumble into peace players 
And prior to joining Peace Players, I think I might have spoken to like six or seven people. So I kind of knew the org organization pretty well before applying. And um, I applied for the fellowship. We have a two-year fellowship uh, for young uh, kind of recent grads to uh, work in one of the international sites. So this is three Peace Players in the U.S. And so um, I initially I actually wanted to go to South Africa or the Mid Middle East site. And uh, I wound up going to Northern Ireland and what a learning experience for me. I literally learned how to drive before moving out there. So imagine learning how to drive on the right side of the road and then mm -hmm. get to the country and now you're driving on the left side of the road. So whenever I talk about my, my Belfast experience, it's like, it's like incredible. It's not incredible, but com compounded growth in a short period of time. Just think putting yourself out of your comfort zone for two years straight. Like I grew some gray hairs while I was out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> the, the long-term rewards of having that experience was amazing. Again, just some back background story of me. I'm an immigrant kid. You know, my family moved here when I was 12. And so this was my first time like li really living away from family um, mm -hmm. while working and kind of taking on like my second kind of real job outside of college. So there was a lot of growth, a lot of uh, challenges, but I think my mindset throughout the experience was has always been, you know, it's the long-term game, right? Like, and and just really putting myself in a position to learn and be a sponge and take on opportunities that, that cultivated my leadership potential. And so over time, I, you know, obviously that showed internally and I was uh, promoted a number of times and now, you know, in the position of, of as a co-ED co in, in the U.S. So that's kind of my journey. And I feel like I sandwiched a lot into that, but that's how we got to, you know, I got to Peace Players and, you know, in this current position. How, it's interesting you went from uh, AmeriCorps to what it sounds like on the outside, a somewhat similar position, right? An international fellow. Um, do you think that AmeriCorps year kind of prepped you for that obviously can't prep you for Belfast um a little different but do you think it prepped you like for the type of service work things that you were going to be work focusing on yeah so to, to be fair like um you know I, like I said I'm, I'm I'm an immigrant kid so I didn't have a ton of like you know tra travel abroad experiences you know in college and part of what I wanted to do because I had known about peace players for maybe a year or so before I, I applied for the fellowship and so a lot of what I wanted to do was to, you know, position and prepare myself to be able to take on um, that that role. And um, I actually, I did an AmeriCorps year and I also worked as like a part-time coach in like this random like basketball program in uh, Flushing, Queens that had a very diverse group of kids. I'm talking like Asia, uh, some African youth and just a very diverse mix of young people and that was my way of like I live in one of the most if not the most diverse city in the world like I'm going to capitalize on the diversity here uh to expose myself to you know very different cultures before taking on an international opportunity so my AmeriCorps experience also came up came as a result of I didn't I didn't actively pursue that it was one of those things where um while in grad school I was like a part-time coach with PowerPlay NYC Mm -hmm. And uh, right when I was wrapping up, they they asked me if I was interested in taking on this AmeriCorps role. And, and I was kind of like, I, I, in some ways I was excited, but I, I it was one of those things where it was like, it was an opportunity and I was still job searching at the time. So I, I took it on. And so 
Um, a lot of the relationships, actually, I built some really strong relationships during that time that a lot of those folks knew people at Peace Players already. Um, I got to speak with uh, Matt Geschke, who's currently the you know, North America director at Nike. And Matt was a fellow in South Africa a couple mm. years ago, uh, a couple years before that. And I happened to meet Matt through my AmeriCorps experience. So like I, I was exposed to a lot of folks who had close proximity to the Peace Players Network. So by the time I interviewed for the role, I, I already knew knew people who, you know, who knew my background and, and could vouch for me. So that, you know, increased my, um, my likelihood of getting the fellowship and also being successful when I, I got there as well. So fast forward to a few months ago, um, I believe September, I mean, you joined a panel really testifying on issues facing athletes before the commission on the state of U.S. Olympics and Paralympics on, on Capitol Hill. Talk to us a little bit about that experience, the message that you and, and your panel members were, were discussing really throughout that. Yeah, so that that was, I mean, my like I said, and I talked about this at the start, like this is a long term journey for me. Like I, my, you know, big picture is to we want to start at the micro level and then be able to influence at the macro. And I think that was like for me one of you know the, the first um the first glimpse of like my my big picture of being in a position to be able to you know speak on the behalf of you know organizations who are working at the grassroots level. And so that was the the US OPC commission um hearing on kind of the state of youth sports. And the role of the federal government of government in, in you know ultimately in investing in you know sports at the grassroots level. And so my uh, testimony focused uh, primarily on kind of like the state of what what we're seeing for a lot of these organizations who are working on the ground, where the barriers are, where the, where the challenges are, you know how we've solved for those barriers, but you know just and, and also you know honing in on where the gaps are and where government could potentially play. A role through you know policy, and so um, I got to to be on that panel alongside um, a couple kind of influential folks within uh, this space, uh, including Tom Ferry, a project play and the League Apps uh, folks. So you know, like I said, my my long term vision is is macro, and I understand like in order to be able to be effective in that space, um, it's important to have uh, experiences on the ground, uh, coaching and 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 meeting people who are deeply affected by policy and really identifying where the challenges are to be able to make a real difference when we're you know, in that seat. Let's stick on macro because uh, Ian will probably laugh. Like we've talked about it on this podcast a million times. We've talked about it in person with different, uh, you know, coaches or players, just people in the space about the need for a massive overhaul of youth sports in America. Right. So where do we begin, right? Do we, does it, there? because I agree with you, there's kind of the macro level, right? Who's in charge? Right now it's nobody. Um, I have long said that the NBA should have a controlling interest, even if it's just with the elite. Like, let's start with the elite players, because obviously, you know, okay, they don't really want to invest in me. Uh, my ceiling was pretty short. Um, but I, you know, so like, if we start with the elite, like, where do we go? Does it actually start with the federal government? Is it the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Knicks taking control and actually having programming, working together? Like, where do we begin here? From where from where I sit, and you know, a lot of what we've seen um, 
on the ground, like with organizations like ours, like you think about the state of the youth sports system right now, right? There was a time where if a young person was talented, they had an opportunity to play, be it on their um, recreational team locally in their cities. And their talent was what determined if, if they were going to be seen and have an opportunity to play at a collegiate level or professional level. Now we know that that, that industry has become um, heavily privatized. And what determines if a young person is going to have access to, to sport is family income and where you live. And so we see that you know, access to sport has become a social justice issue. It went from being a, you know, a recreational activity that we want every young person to have an opportunity to play sport. But what it's turned into, because now we have a market, um, and a, a big business around youth sports, so many families have been left behind. And not only have so many families been left behind, we have social, economic, and health implications for you know, young people not participating in sport. We know the the lifelong benefits of, of playing sports. The data is there that shows the you know the positive relationship between um, finish graduating high school and 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 doing well academically and playing sport. For young girls, we know what the outcomes are. Like the data is out there. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole hole, but when we look at it from that that systemic level, we realize that this is a fairness issue. It's an access issue. And at this point, like the, the, the government has a responsibility to regulate. And part of the US OPC's uh, mandate is, is to invest a certain number of their budget um, towards developing grassroots sports. However, that has never really you know, been the case in mm -hmm. that a lot of their investment goes towards developing elite athletes. And so from an access standpoint, it's important that you know, we, we think about the, the existing organizations who are solving for this gap. These are the SBYD or sports-based youth development organizations who are solving for this gap and you know, making sport accessible for young people um, who have been left behind by the pay-to-play system. It's yeah. important that those organizations are funded um, just at a very minimal level. And then if we think about the next level, which is the experience of these young people in sports, we don't we don't have a proper like standardized coaching uh, a process for for someone to become a coach. Nope. We have random people picking up a basketball and, and coach it and a whistle and the and the <laughs> yeah special New York was crazy. How many yeah. AAU teams are in New York? It was like who are you? What? Yeah. So from that you know perspective, it's we need to standardize what it mean what it means to become a coach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Safeguarding. There are so many other um, areas that we can improve, but at a bare minimum is access. And part of how we make sure that as many young people have access to sport is by funding the organizations who are solving for this, this gap that has been created by the pay-to-play sports system. Where do you land on how the U.S. could look to Europe or other countries on how they approach youth sports because it's just so radically different from the structure philosophy standardization of coaching what they do at practice like not to get that micro into it but like how can we steal some of their best practices and, and bring them over I, I i can speak mainly from from the perspective of an outsider i know that in europe they have the club system yeah whereas in the states we have our, our aau system which I don't want to start talking about <laughs> you, 
but you know the club system allows um young people to to properly develop their skill sets you know over a period of time and get to play with or at least get to have um you know teammates and, and role models that they can look up to at different um age age levels within the club and i know that in europe there's a, a greater emphasis on development whereas in the u.s there's a greater emphasis on getting as many opportunities to play Game. Like, i'm yeah. terrified of what i'm seeing at uconn but like and i'm talking about uconn women's basketball where i think three players right now are done for the season because of injuries um and I, my heart goes out to them i i wonder what's playing a role in these um just higher um higher prevalence of injury within the the competitive um sports um ecosystem so I don't know too much about what's going on in Europe, but I do know that the club system allows, you know, that emphasis on development and training and practice, which yeah. allows kids to grow and and gain the fundamental skill set to play it, play their sport before, you know, playing AAU games at 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Until, yeah. yeah, until 10, 11 o'clock at night. It, it, it's baffling to me. Crazy. And just even as being working in those environments too. I mean, at I was 24, 25, I'm exhausted just working, sitting at a booth, checking coaches in. And, and, and obviously, I mean, it, they're lengthy days where it's nonstop and you pack on the travel along with that. If you're going from this to one weekend to another location next weekend, you're balancing school. It, 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 it does seem like we've got to this point where it's, it's almost like a tipping point. I, I, it's, it's hard to believe how, how an athlete can function in, in that type of environment. Yeah. Taking a little bit of a sidestep, um, another venture that you're involved in, The Post, um, you know, private membership network, uh, connecting leaders that are built by sport. Tell us a little bit more about that and um, kind of how, how, how you got involved in, in, in that. Yeah, so The Post is an athlete community for um, former professionals, uh, professional athletes or collegiate athletes to have like that locker room support that we, many of us experienced when we were, um, you know, playing competitively. And the mission, the, the idea behind that is there are certain qualities that athletes develop over the time of playing their sport that trans translates into other areas of life, be it business, be it business or, or leadership and creating an environment where you can bring together people who are, you know, competitive, incredibly driven, uh, and share those those mindsets and, and char characteristics of of athletes, and create an environment of, of learning and, and networking and supporting one another in this uh, part of our lives. Um, I got involved with the post uh, mainly through my um, I'm pretty active in in this kind of recreational women's basketball group in in Brooklyn, New York, and. A couple of the girls who were part of that uh, community um, were also involved with, with the post. So um, I, I attended a couple of events during the, the beta testing um, and had an opportunity to meet some of the brilliant minds behind it and was you know, invited to become a founding member. And so um, for me personally, I, I pride myself on, on on mindset and just seeing the world through my my. Um, my athletic experiences or my athletic um, lens, you yeah. know, if you're an athlete and you, you know, this, I'm sure I know I'm seeing jerseys in the background. So I know you all um, were, were athletes at some point, but you know, you, you learn the, the value of that anything can be learned. 
right? I remember when I was a freshman in high school and I went to my first you know, basketball camp ever. And at, at this point, I was a very raw basketball player and I'd never used my left hand. And these <laughs> girls like forced me left the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole camp. And when I got back, I was like, this is never going to happen to me again. And I spent, you know, the next summer just constantly working on my left. And over the last, since then, just always, you know, wanted to, to strengthen my left hand. And so what I learned from that was that, you know, anything can be learned um, if you, you know, make time and, and create the, the space to do that. And that, that's what the post is, that while we are transitioning into these, this new kind of um, to career 2.0 beyond our sport, that there are a lot, lots of uh, skills and experiences that we've had previously that can translate in that space and then create an environment where we can you know, maximize, maximize it from others who, who have that shared experience as well. So career 2.0, that's a good transition. You're a guest lecturer at multiple different universities. Um, kind of a two-part question. Tell us about your experience, um, you know, being a, a professor, a guest lecturer, um, what courses you teach, and then a, a deeper level question around just the state of higher education. Uh, it has been in flux, let's say, uh, in the last five to 10 years. Um, where do you think higher education is going? Uh, and, and what would you recommend, especially because you work with youth all the time, what do you recommend to a junior in high school right now? These are great packed, packed questions. Um, <laughs> I, I consider myself a, a lifelong learner. And I think part of how you, um, how you become an even, uh, an even stronger learner is by teaching others what you learn. Right. If you can simplify and communicate uh, your, you know, area of expertise or top topics of expertise, and communicate that to another audience who might be new to it, then you elevate your understanding of of, of that topic and that work. And so, for me, on, on my my journey and my um my kind of like purpose around you know taking on teaching opportunities was one. Obviously, it's a great visibility opportunity, but then second, I get to really strengthened my ability to communicate my work. And so I got my first opportunity to do this through Adelphi University. And as you know, Paul, they're pretty active in the SBYD uh, community. But over the last couple of years, I've been invited by other like universities to either do a guest lecture or kind of like a keynote or speak on panels. Uh, and so I've, I've um, I've done a guest lecture with Yale University, uh, Jackson School of Global Affairs. Um, I've done one with Kent State University as well. I've got one lined up with NYU this spring um, and Clark University. So part mm -hmm. of my, you know, my approach towards doing that is, you know, in my learning journey, I believe that, like I said, um, you become an expert in your work by being able to teach others. And the preparation that goes into that, the, um, and recognizing the audience, the audience will vary depending on what uh, program uh, you're you're teaching. So, for example, Yale stu students were all global affairs um, undergrad students. When I go up to Clark University, they're mainly going to be sports business and sports management. That's a sports management audience. Um, mm -hmm. NYU the same thing. So, being intentional about who, who the audience is uh, and the preparation and and building out the the concepts behind the class leading up to that is 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 also adding to my development as well. And then 
to answer your second question in terms of the future of higher education. Tough one. Tough that, one. Tough one. But you know what I do think that education I think will will increasingly become more skills focused. Mm -hmm. But people are attending university to acquire a specific or certain skill. Um, when we went to college, it was very much, you know, very general. You picked your courses and you got your electives and you made, had your majors or whatever. But I do think that um, college is still very much necessary, but maybe students will be more um, uh, particular about what skill that they're looking to acquire and identifying courses that would get them there. So that means that higher education has to be, you know, innovative and customizing courses in a way that meets your, you know, your average um you know, learner or potential um, student. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Speaking of college, um, I think if you look at across college basketball today, women's basketball is is truly fun, getting that point where it's getting the full recognition and love that it's is long deserved. And I think whether that's partially in due to you have really stars and Caitlin Clark, Paige Beckers, Angel Reese, but really the investment and the coverage hopefully is, is only going to continue to grow. What would you kind of attribute that last five to 10 years, that increased coverage, that increased awareness around women's college basketball to get us to kind of where we are in the, in the trajectory that it's, it's, it's continued to head toward. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to watch. I actually, I was just watching the Iowa Ohio state game on Sunday. And what, what a great game. Crazy. Um, that's you guys is home. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think a lot of it has to do with, there is a trend of athlete empowerment that we see right now. A lot of athletes are taking ownership of mm -hmm. you know, their um, story, their, um, you know, what their, um, their business or their, their image as, as a business. And obviously NIL, NIL has a lot to do with this, but this was, I think before even NIL, and, you know, I think social media also played a role where you're able to kind of see the full athlete growing up. Like when we watched games, like, you know, you watch, you saw the player and you, you, you judge them based on who they were on the court and kids were encouraged to be on their best behavior. So we didn't really get to see the personalities behind these, these players. And so with social media and, you know, this greater empowerment around athletes, we're, we're starting to see the full person. And, and many of these athletes are just very interesting, entertaining personalities that we're, we're yeah. hearing about. So that's from like, I think from a marketing and a visibility standpoint, and then from kind of like the, the level of play, I mean, the girlies, the girlies are hooping. Absolutely. <laughs> Girls are hooping and it's, it's amazing to, to watch. I think you look at South Carolina, what, what, you know, what Don Staley has built there, yeah. look at, um, you know, you look at Iowa and, you know, the level of like Caitlin, Caitlin Clark, like I am a fan. I'm watching Caitlin Clark and I'm just like, initially I thought it was just all hype. I watched the game last season against, um, I think it was Indiana and watched her hit that buzzer beater live. Yeah. I've been a fan ever, ever since. <laughs> I've been a fan ever <laughs> since. I watched the game from start to finish and saw how she closed that game. And that is incredible. And that's going to put people in, in stands. Um, and then you also look at teams like, um, it's not Baylor, Notre, uh, Notre Dame. Like we've got just really good teams, you know, competing and, and girls not being afraid to show their full personalities, right? Uh, you know, Angel Reese and a lot of the girls who are wearing their, you know, their edge control and like their makeup, like mm -hmm. now athletes are, you know, female athletes, especially 
are relatable to girls who are also not athletes. So of course, I think that's increasing the fan base and bringing more attention to the game. So I, I'm enjoying it and the quality and the level of plays. It's always, I've always found it entertaining, but I think it's it's hit another another level. It's funny, like when you grow up in Connecticut, you're in kind of a bubble because, first of all, I mean, I'm not a uh, I'm a UConn women's basketball fan by default. I'm not a UConn men's basketball fan, so like it was easy for us. It was like, yeah, man, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird. Like it was just something you did. It was just something you paid attention to. It was part of the ethos of growing up in Connecticut. So then very quickly I was like, oh, that's not the norm. You guys don't do that out here. And there was just an article that the athletic released that showed the difference at Iowa. Women's basketball games sold out every one of them. Men's basketball games half three quarters like and they're talking about what are we going to do with fran are we firing him it's like it's like holy shit like this is happening like like this is an actual movement and and it's sad that like it's i'm trying to boil it down and like land the plane here but like it's just coverage and i think a lot of not a lot of things america is driven by economics business roi bottom line and i think finally they realized, oh, it's not that people don't like the sport. It's that the sport's not on. And if you simply put it on, they'll watch. And like it, I'm not trying to make it that simple, but it's like it took that long for us to realize that, oh, wow, you can make money. It's like, OK, let's do it. Yeah, let's put Caitlin Clark on TV as many times as we possibly can. It's like. Anyway, games um, like I'm, I'm I'm talking like. When I watching growing up, like even like can't can when Candace Parker was playing, like I yeah. set in the alarm to watch the games because they were just as yep. entertaining as they are today. Yep. The only difference is that we're getting more visibility and you know, more coverage, like you said. Yeah. Um, all right, last question, and then we'll do some rapid fire and then we'll get to the the green light for a hot take. But I just want to get we you briefly talked about NIL and the concept of branding and, and being able to make money and, and all that stuff. Um, specifically maybe I mean I don't know if you want to get into like your thoughts on college football that seems to be where it is like drastically affecting with transfers and all of that but like where do you see in everything in this in probably the world but all I can say to this country the pendulum swings too far and then we try and bring it back right and I think we probably still haven't even seen the the craziest of the crazy with nil we probably will still continue to see million dollar offers and offensive linemen getting million dollars just to like crazy stuff right and eventually either the ncaa or the colleges or the conferences are going to have to make it standard like a standard offering or something like where do you see that going and have you seen it in high school at all with any of your athletes or anything like that yeah, I think NIL is such, I think it's one of those um, it's opportunities and conversations that I think is we're just going to keep learning it as we go. But eventually we're going to have to put some kind of, you know, stipulations or regulations um, around it. And to be fair, I haven't fo- followed, it, followed it closely on the football side, but I've heard a couple of things about in terms of how uh, booster clubs and in, in universities are have gotten involved, right? Mm-hmm. And at the high school level, 
Uh, many of our kids would be young people who are not playing on their high school teams or AAU teams, even though in, in some cities like in Brooklyn and Detroit, uh, some of our girls um, are playing uh, like New York versus New York or playing in, in some of the more competitive um, mm -hmm. circuits in, in Detroit. So, you know, I haven't seen it at, at the high school level, but what I would say uh, from from where I sit, um, but watching from far and what, you know, overtime is building and overtime elite. Um, I, I, I think there's a story there around like high school athletes. And I love that coverage at, at that level. I also know a lot of, feel a lot of, a lot of these kids are maybe too young to have that, you know, media exposure. Um, when I was 15 years old, I had no business being on social media and, and trying to build my brand because, you know, mm -hmm. who I was at 15 is certainly not who I am at, you know, at this age. Um, so I, I worry about, you know, protecting, uh, young athletes, um, and you know, making sure that they're prepared to be, you know, you know, real external public uh, fig figures uh, before pursuing, uh, be it brand deals or NIL opportunities. Just preparing the full athlete and not just you know taking advantage of the the hype or the ranking that they have right now. So I, I think it's one of those you know spaces that will continue to evolve. And uh, my hope is that my hope and my uh, you know, focus, you know, for lack of better words, would be on protecting the athletes and making sure that, you know, that they're not, you know, selling themselves too short uh, because there's there's a price tag. Yep. All right. You've reached the end. Rapid fire questions. We have six of them and then you get uh, you get the floor for uh, for your hot take. So uh, first question, favorite player of all time. Every time I answer this question, like people give me a weird, weird eye. I have a couple of favorite players, but the player who I would say that I have admired for a long time is LeBron James. Yeah. Um, and I know it's, it's, it's controversial, but I he is my favorite player. And I think I, there's so much, so much I can say about LeBron, but uh, that he is my my favorite. All right. So I think I know the answer to number three. But number two, is Rajon Rondo a Hall of Famer? Yes. Okay. LeBron yes. or Jordan? <laughs> ah. I think we know, but you know the answer. Whenever I'm asked this question, my response is always um the person who I grew up watching was LeBron. Yeah. And I, I imagine people who grew up in the like I grew up in the nineties too, but I was born in Nigeria. We weren't watching um, you know. NBA playoffs where I got to experience and witness Michael Jordan do what he did live, like how I witnessed Clark <laughs> in the live game. And now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, so I, I go with LeBron because he was the player who I watched uh, more. And when I look at the stats and his impact, there's not much to say players that he played with and how far, you know, he got and it was the success that he's had. Um, I'm a loyal uh, LeBron fan, so I'm I'm riding with LeBron. I'm right there with you. Right Can't go wrong. You. Can't go wrong. Uh, best dunker of all time. Vince Carter. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. I mean, still to this day, it's the best dunk contest ever, right? Like, I mean, that was just the peak dunk contest of NBA. Um, favorite sneaker of all time. Basketball sneaker or just sneaker? Uh, it could be either. Um, if I were to go, go with basketball sneaker, I would say the Hyper Dunks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, I had my pair for like 
six, seven years, I played outdoor, indoor with them. Like they wow. were the most comfortable sneaker I ever, I ever hooped in. So I, I would have to go with the Hyperdunks. That's a good one. Best basketball movie of all time. I think every, every female basketball player has this one. The love and basketball. Love and basketball. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's a great one. All right. Last question. Every guest gets asked. You have the floor for a green light for a hot take. Can be about anything. Doesn't have to be about sports or basketball. It can be about food or uh, travel, cities, whatever you want it to be. Floor is yours. What is the hot take? Um. So I, I was thinking about this throughout our conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what comes to mind is, you know, I mentioned to you guys, I'm Nigerian and we have this kind of forever competition with Ghana on who has the best jollof rice. So for our mm -hmm. viewers and listeners who don't know what jollof rice is, All right. it's a staple um, kind of meal um, and it's made out of like rice and tomato sauce and spices and the the Ghanaians season theirs a, a certain way. The Senegalese season theirs a certain way. The Nigerian oh. season a certain way. My hot take is that the Nigerian jollof is the best. Oh, okay, all right, good. I thought you were gonna go the other direction. No, 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 no. All right, I, I tried them all, and I I wanted I wanted to be you know to be proven wrong, but the, the Nigerian jollof holds strong, and I make a really good Nigerian jollof. So you, I was you, gonna you, say, do you have? Out? Do you if have you a go-to spot? The, for the Is right it, price, I'll cook you a pot and you you get to see. All right. I'm going to be in New York in like 12 days. I'm going to hit you up. What uh, is there a go-to spot in New York that you go to that has the best? Um, yes. So there, there's a lounge that just opened up and it's by Times Square. It's called Lagos Lounge. Um, if you want to hang out and like listen to Afro or you can hang out because the, it's, it's pretty loud. The music is loud, but if you just want food, I'm pretty sure you can order take out um, their jollof rice, it's pretty good. But the best restaurant that I've tried that makes the best uh, jollof rice is, is actually in London. Hmm. It's called uh, Coal City. So coal as in like charcoal. Um, and they make the best jollof rice and best Nigerian food I've ever tried. So if you ever happen to be in London, Coal City. <laughs> I'm putting on my list. I'm going in June and I'm putting on the list right now. I probably- Oh, you are going in June. That's I am going. For the most obscure, to watch the New York Mets play, so it's the most random circumstances. But I, I am not a the one. Last time we were in London, um, I'm not a huge Indian food fan. But I was told you have to go mm. to this Indian restaurant. Absolutely blew my mind. And some, and I know there's some. London's got some basic cuisine of your fish and chips. It's not really known for that, but there is some. I think incredible food, and so I'm very, very excited now to put that on the list and uh and, and venture out there in, in june so you gotta try it it's buffet style Woo! expensive yes. you can tell like the aunt is back there cooking it it's not right. like let's go assembly line just go try it it's it's, it's amazing i, I, enjoy I love it. it well listen this is uh this was great i'm so happy we were finally able to do it for people that want to connect with you follow you uh engage whatever it is where, where's the best place they can do that LinkedIn, um, loving LinkedIn these days. Um, Sally and Namani, um, Instagram, I don't post as often, uh, but I'm on there and I'm you know, connected to folks who are, uh, who are in similar spaces. So find me on Instagram at Sally L. That's Sally E L L. -L.
Awesome. Well, great. Thank you again. And uh, like I said, I'm going to be in New York soon, so I'm going to hit you up for that rice. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you. I've been feeling like this is what I've been working towards. If you ain't trying to be the boss, and tell me what you're working for. Certain doors are closed, but now they opening up. Celebrating with some shots, maybe poke on a cup. Pull, slush, rust, souls up next, and I got this. Crazy like Britney and the love so toxic. Got a wall up, I'm trying to infiltrate a conscious. Taking 12 shots like where the cops is. Come on.